Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies. This is Sean Hamilton, your host. Today I'm speaking with Henry Weinsick, author of Master of the Mountain, Thomas Jefferson and His Slaves. Thank you so much, Henry, for joining us. Thank you for having me on, on your show. Great, great. So I guess first just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to, to write the book. Well, I had written two books about slavery before. I wrote a, um, a long study of the... Uh, an African-American family named the Hairstons, uh, and there's a white family uh, that shares the same name, and they pronounce it Harston, because the blacks used to be the slaves of the whites, and I, I got to meet them in North Carolina and spent many years telling their story. Uh, and that led to a book about George Washington and his slaves. Uh, and I hadn't expected to write another book about slavery, but when I when I was giving a talk about the Washington book, uh, after it, in the Q&A period, one of the people in the audience said, uh, gee, you should write a book about Jefferson. And uh, I hadn't thought of it before, but uh, after considering it for a very short time, I said, you know what, I, there's so much about Jefferson I don't understand, so I'll, I'll jump into that. And, um, and it, was, it turned out to be much more difficult than I thought. <laughs> what, um, what were your, your thoughts on Jefferson, your assumptions about his... Uh, Jefferson and his slaves prior to your writing the book? Well, uh, I, I pretty much followed the conventional wisdom that, um, that Jefferson was a very benevolent slaveholder, that he was genuinely trapped in the institution of slavery, uh, that he was trapped by his debts, trapped by the social custom and law, and also trapped by a kind of primitive racism that, uh, that, that he uh, wrote down in uh, Notes in the State of Virginia. I mean, this primitive idea that black people were different and inferior to whites uh, and that we should never live together uh, and that all blacks should be exiled. And, uh, and then, but my research cha- changed all of that. I mean, I, I found uh, that, uh, you know, he, he really wasn't trapped at all. He had many opportunities to, to free his slaves. Uh, and that, in fact, he found slavery very profitable. Um, and I also found that, you know, he continued to disparage the, you know, the character and the achievements of African Americans, even though his plantation was run by an extremely intelligent and competent group of enslaved people. Uh, so nothing, nothing added up anymore. Right. Now, sort of describe describe Jefferson's early years and his and his views on slavery in his in his younger days. Well, uh, he grew up uh, on a on a small plantation called Shadwell, just at the bottom of the mountain uh, where he later built Monticello, which is just outside of, of Charlottesville and uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. And um, his father had father and mother had oh gosh, I I, I forget the number. Um, maybe 30 or 40 slaves. Um, and one thing he wrote down in, in his book, Notes on the State of Virginia, was 
the recollection of seeing a parent, uh, you know, giving loose to the worst kind of passions against the slave. I mean, meaning, you know, berating a slave or beating a slave. So his his memories of of his childhood were of, in part, were violence uh, against against slaves. So, uh, in in his in his younger years, he he put he uh, proposed an emancipation plan for Virginia in the House of Burgesses, and that was turned down. Uh, he talked about enfranchising the slaves, meaning setting them free and allowing them to be citizens. Uh, but then then he changed. Mm-hmm. And now, just to to focus on his his talk about franchising the slaves, in that sense, at that particular time, he was hundreds of years ahead of of a lot of the country, right? I mean, we didn't see full franchisement until the 1960s, right? Well, when he said enfranchise, he did not mean to to give freed slaves the vote. Okay. What he meant, uh, yeah, no, that's a very good question, because with today, when we hear the word franchise, uh, you know, we think that it, it refers to voting. Uh, at that time, it meant to to grant the rights of citizenship to someone. Okay. Um, so, but but that did not necessarily include voting. First of all, because there were very strict property requirements for right, voting, right, right. you had to be relatively well off in order to vote. Um, and it didn't mean that you would be the social equal of other people. That, okay. um, uh, but what? But it, it seems pretty clear to me that uh, he because he wrote this in his um, document that we call the summary view. It was. Uh, something he wrote in 1774, it was a short statement of the rights of the colonists under the king. And in the middle of it, he makes this startling statement where he says, if if we can just stop the slave trade and stop the influx of, of new slaves to Virginia, we can proceed to the enfranchisement of the slaves we have. Um, it's a really, it's a very, it's just an astonishing statement, but his meaning is clear. Um, so... Uh, he, he was really, he was in advance of his times. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, in that sense, they would, I, right, I get it, I get it. Now, um, the there was a case you talked about that he that he took pro bono when he was younger, the case of Samuel Howell. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes, the, the, uh, when Jefferson was a young lawyer, he took on the case of an indentured servant uh, named Howell. Now, uh, indentured servitude is something that um, we actually, I mean, most people don't have a, a, a really firm understanding of it. We think, uh, we usually think of indentured servants as people uh, who, poor people, who white people who came over from England and uh, promised to, made, signed a contract to work for seven years until they had paid for their passage on the boat, and then they would get some land and some cash and they would become free Americans. Uh, or free colonists. That's there were indentured servants like that. Many, uh, you know, tens and tens of thousands of them. But there was another form of indentured servitude, which was uh, it was uh, it was a punishment. Uh, it was a punishment specifically addressed towards racial mixing. If a um, a woman who was white or who was mixed race had a child, but with a dark skinned man. Then uh, the child would be would be taken away by the church wardens and brought to court, and would be bound out, as the expression goes, to a farmer or a planter for 31 years, um, and that was another form of indenture. Uh, 
Uh, and in a sense, I mean, it was a short-term slavery. Now, and then if in the terms of that indenture, that, per, that person, if it was a woman, uh, if, that, if that woman had a child, then that child, too, would be indentured for 31 years. Uh, so when Jefferson was a lawyer practicing in Williamsburg, Virginia, this young man, uh, Howell, who was then 27 years old, I think, or 28, came to him and said that he was being held uh, as an indentured servant, even though he had only one uh, grandparent who was black. Mm-hmm. And Jefferson thought that this was wicked, and he... he Took the uh, that was his word. He took the case to court uh, and argued that Howell should be set free because he said the original law did not intend that this indenture should be passed to the third generation. Uh, but he lost the case. The judges, as, as soon as he made his arguments, the judges found against him. Okay. So uh, and Howell was remained uh, an indentured servant until he turned thirty-one. Wow. Okay. Um, and so, now, in the, you have some some different conclusions too about what about Jefferson's meaning in, in the Declaration of Independence when he says all men are created equal. What what were your views on that? I think that uh, well, a number of scholars uh, I, I share the view that a number of scholars have that when when Jefferson wrote all men are created equal, that he actually meant to include African Americans um, and. And later, he developed this notion, or uh, he refined the notion that you know black people certainly have rights, but they don't have them here. They have them only in Africa. They, and so, for black people to claim their full rights, they have to be exiled and you know sent back to Africa. Uh, there's this theory that Jefferson viewed all black people residing in the United States as a quote captive nation. Uh, and that they, they, because they were because they had been taken captive in Africa and sent over here, they were prisoners. And prisoners have no rights. But when they go when they go back to Africa, their rights will be restored to them. Um, so, but of course, you know, he would make he was willing to make exceptions to this. I mean, he would he freed his own uh, children by Sally Hemings, uh, even though they were part um, African. Uh, but to go back to your question uh, about the, the Declaration of Independence. Um, it's it's interesting that when several southern state constitutions were written based on that on the Declaration, they had to change that wording. They didn't say all men are created equal; they said all free men are created equal. Mm-hmm. So they knew that uh, if they used Jefferson's wording exactly, that it would force them to end slavery in their states. Okay, and now Jefferson inherited a well. He took possession of a number of slaves when he married his wife. I, um, I Mary, was it Mary Jefferson? I forgot her, her name. Um, uh, when he married yeah, Martha, Martha Martha Wales Skelton. Yeah. yeah, that was her name. Okay, just tell me tell us a little bit about who who those slaves were and sort of their their role in Jefferson's Jefferson's household, his life. Sure. When. Um when Jefferson married Martha Wales, he uh, inherited a, thousands of acres of land and I think about 130, 135 slaves uh, who, who had been the property of Martha's father. Now, when, when Martha was a young woman, uh, her mother died, 
And actually, her father, John Wales, was married three times. And after the death of his third wife, he began a relationship with one of his slaves who was named Elizabeth Betty Hemings. And with Hemings, he had six children, uh, and in the, the youngest of whom was Sally Hemings. And when uh, John Wales died, the Hemings family, along with the other slaves I just mentioned, were inherited by Martha, uh, but under the laws and the customs of the time, her property became Thomas, her husband's property. Uh, so, but six of those slaves that she brought into the household at Monticello were her half-siblings. Uh, and so this created a very interesting situation. Uh, and then after Martha's death, uh, when Jefferson was in Paris, he began a relationship with his wife's youngest half-sister, um, Sally Hemings, who was just 14 when she arrived in Paris and was either 14 or 15 when Jefferson began a relationship with her. Mm-hmm. And why was Jefferson in Paris at that, at that point? Jefferson went to Paris uh, in 1784 after the revolution as the United States trade representative and minister plenipotentiary. Um, he was there um, mainly to negotiate trade contracts for our tobacco and, and rice uh, and, and, and other products. But the, uh, the country was in desperate need of, of cash, and our exports were you know, vitally important to us. And so there was a very, very important assignment. But So, as I said, he was over there as a trade representative, and um, he, when he was there, after he'd been there for a while, uh, he asked that his, uh, his youngest surviving daughter be sent to him from Virginia, and Sally Hemings went along as a traveling companion on the, on the ship. Okay. And so what, what was his experience like in Paris? I think I, I remember reading in the book that when he's there, a lot of his, um, his I don't know, intellectual peers in, in France were challenging his, his behavior with regards to slavery, right? Yes, when he was in Paris uh, and, and trying to negotiate uh, these trade agreements for the United States, he found that all of, of, the, of our most important friends at, at the French court uh, were abolitionists, uh, people like uh, Lafayette and a, an ex-officer uh, named Chastelou uh, and a number of other people who were uh, willing to support the, United, the new United States, but they couldn't understand why we still had slavery because they, they said, well, you just finished fighting a war for universal human rights. How is it that you can keep slavery? And Jefferson promised that slavery would end soon in Virginia. And actually, at the end of his time in France in 1789, he uh, circulated uh, the details of a plan that he said when he got back to Virginia, he would import some German sharecroppers from, you know, from the Rhine area and settle them on small plots of land with his slaves and train the slaves to be self-sufficient, and then he would release the slaves, uh, and he said he had no doubt they would be good citizens. Um, so it was really a quite an, an interesting and very practical plan. Um, but then when he got back to Virginia, he, he gave up all thought of it. Okay. Now, t- tell me about the summary notes of Virginia. That was a document that he wrote that was pretty, I mean, it's very, a lot of the worst quotes that we read about slavery or Jefferson writing about slavery seem to come from that one document. Why did he write that? 
Oh, you mean, uh, uh, you're referring to his notes on the state of Virginia. Yeah, sorry, notes on the state of Virginia. Not the summary. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, Jefferson began, Jefferson began writing, uh, notes on the state of Virginia, which he never plans, uh, from the, you know, to make into a book. Uh, he and, and other people in the different colonies received a questionnaire from a French official, uh, with, uh, I think it was 13 or 14 queries. Uh, asking each uh, each state uh, to you know answer questions about the laws in the state, the geography, the natural resources, the man- manners and, and morals, the economy, uh, and, and other subjects. And so, and Jefferson took this up very eagerly, and he, and he wrote um, a, a very interesting and, and and very much studied description of of what Virginia was like in the 1780s. And he also wrote a long, uh, a long account of slavery, uh, and it was there that he justified slavery on the grounds that black people were physically and mentally different from whites, and in some respects, he said he suspected that that black people were inferior. Uh, he, he said that. Um, you know, that black people needed less sleep, that they smelled different from whites because the, their system of secretions was different. It had something to do with their kidneys. He speculated on why black people had black skin, and he didn't know exactly if it was something in the upper skin or the lower skin. He has all of these uh, you know, proto-scientific speculations. And then he gets into uh, the notion of the mind of the black person, and he says... Well, I have never heard a black person tell uh, a story about the basic level of, na- of narration. He said that in their imagination, they are very dull. Um, and, of course, he didn't take into, into any consideration the fact that just about everybody he dealt with was a slave. Um, and he went out of his way to discredit the most sh- shining uh, example of, of black literary brilliance, which uh, was Phyllis Wheatley the enslaved poet from Boston, who was probably the most famous poet in the United States at the time, and she had an international reputation. She was admired in France and in England, uh, and he said that uh, her her poetry uh, was all about um, love, and so, or I forget, he said, her, no, he said her poetry was all about religion, so it wasn't really poetry. Uh, and uh, and so then he said that her works were beneath criticism. Well, this is you know utterly absurd. Her her poetry is really lovely, and it's I think it's you know some of the finest of the era. Uh, so whenever he ran into a, a, a something that contradicted his theories, he would just find some way of discrediting it. Mm-hmm. And most of it with the with the intent was he. I guess I'm trying to understand who the audience was for the book. It was the French. Was he trying to defend slavery um, on some kind of biological grounds primarily? Is that what, what that was all? Or, yes. Yeah. yes. He was trying, he was trying to, to excuse Americans. Uh, he was trying to find an excuse for why Americans had not ended slavery. And so he was blaming slavery on the slaves. His audience uh, what was was intended to be French intellectuals. The document that he was writing, as I mentioned, was not intended for publication, but it was to be circulated as a private document in France to French intellectuals who were interested in learning 
what this new country was like. Uh, and it was only later when uh, an English publisher was going to bring out a, a pirated edition of these notes that Jefferson decided that he had to publish it himself. And he was very nervous about it because uh, in, the, in his notes he says that, you know, the emancipation of the slaves is coming eventually, and he didn't. He was nervous about what kind of reception that would get from the slaveholders back in Virginia. Uh, but so he he consented to have it published, and then and, and and he thought the audience in the U.S. would be very small, and he thought maybe a few students at William and Mary should be allowed to read it. Uh, but he did not want want the general public in the U.S. to get their hands on it. Got you. Now describe Monticello, Jefferson's home. Monticello is a, uh, it, well, the, the name means Little Mountain. Uh, the mountain itself is about 800 feet high. It's in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in, in central Virginia. It, uh, Jefferson inherited the mountain and about 5,000 acres of land around it. It's an absolutely beautiful place. Uh, the, the, from the mountaintop, you have spectacular views of the coastal plain to the east and the Blue Ridge to the west. Uh, in, a, in a lovely valley spreading out between Monticello and the, and the Blue Ridge. Um, and he decided he would build a mansion there. And it was a crazy place to build a mansion. It was, you know, it was very expensive because all the building materials had to be hauled up to the top, although uh, you know, they could make bricks right there I mean, this, uh, because there was plenty of clay. The other thing was the, on the top of a mountain, the water supply is very iffy. But when you're a big slaveholder, these problems are not really problems. You have scores of people uh, who can who can do the hard work of hauling stuff up and down the mountain and hauling water uh, up up the mountain. So it was a dream that that he could fulfill because he had he owned so many slaves. Um, and you know he began building it in the 1760s, uh, and then it was he completed it to a certain degree. Uh, before the the revolution, there was there was it was still not entirely finished. Uh, but then, you know, after the revolution, he went to France. He fell in love with French architecture, and decided he was going to completely redo his design. And so he came back and took down some of the things that he built, and uh, enlarged the mansion and put a dome on top of it. Uh, and that that's the, um, the the house that we that we see today. It's really it's it's really magnificent. Right. How, how do you think the the building and the rebuilding of, of Mon- how did that affect his finances? Well, uh, he, by the, in the 1790s, after the revolution and after his time in France, he was still uh, wrestling with the, with the problem of some debt that he had uh, inherited from his father-in-law, John Wales. But, he, but uh, his farming operations were going reasonably well, and he managed to get that debt under control. So he decided to borrow more money so that he could modernize and industrialize his uh, plantation and build Monticello. Uh, and to get that money, he hit upon uh, a very interesting idea. He, he said he realized that he could get, take what we would call a slave equity loan. Uh, he wrote to a banking house in Amsterdam and asked them if they would take 150 Monticello slaves as collateral for a loan, and they agreed. 
So they took title to the slaves. He still owned them, but uh, but but if he defaulted on his loan, they would take possession of them. And the, the bankers then opened a $2,000 line of credit for Jefferson at a merchant house in Philadelphia. And he, he drew upon that money to pay the expenses of, of building his newer, more beautiful Monticello. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a brilliant financial stroke. Mm-hmm. De- describe some of the industries that he, well, some of the businesses that he had on, on Monticello. He had Jefferson was really a pioneer in modernizing slavery, in in, in diversifying it and industrializing it. Uh, at the top of the mountain, for a very short while, he had a tin smithing operation, which didn't uh, did, didn't work out very well. But then he started a nailery, uh, which uh, where he put uh, boys from age ten to sixteen to work, and he opened a textile factory where he put young girls to work. Uh, he had a coopering operation, making barrels. He had a charcoal burning operation, you know, the manufacture of charcoal. Uh, but but then the nailery is very interesting because it became very profitable uh, immediately, uh, and it became very important to him. Je- Jefferson personally, personally supervised it. Every morning he uh, went into the nailery and he doled out, he measured the raw iron rod and uh, that, that each boy would get and would have to work on during the day. And then, you know, the boys would work furiously, pounding at their, you know, heating up the iron and pounding at their forges thousands of times a day. And then Jefferson would come back and weigh the, the finished nails at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the, the boys were so successful that just a few months of their labor paid the grocery bill for the mansion for the entire year. Um, and Jefferson kept a very close watch on these on these boys, and it was kind of a training ground, too. If you did well in the nailery and you were disciplined and you didn't complain and you had a high output, then you would get a reward. You might get a, a new suit of clothes, and you would also uh, be put into training for um, a better job on the mountain. Instead of being sent out into the fields to work under the overseers, who could be quite brutal, uh, you might be trained as a carpenter or a glazier or a charcoal burner and have a better life for yourself. Um, but the, the, you know, I found a, a letter that showed that the nail boys were whipped if they refused to show up to work, and some of them did. Um, and, you know, Je- Jefferson you know, at one point said that when the nail boys were slacking off, he said that they require a vigor of discipline to get them to do reasonable work. Um, and meaning, you know, he didn't say use the whip, but that's that's the implication. Mm-hmm. And on another occasion, he said, "I'm short of cash. Push the push the nailers as hard as you can." So he, he said that to his overseer. Mm-hmm. Now, your findings about about the nail boys being whipped were that that was pretty controversial, right? Well, uh, it's not so much that it's controversial because the the information that I found is is the. There was when um, in the 1950s when Jefferson's letters were being edited, one of his editors who worked at Monticello deleted a line from a letter where the Jefferson son-in-law said that the small boys were being whipped to get them to work uh, because that editor Edwin Betts obviously thought this was too shocking for the public to know, and it reflected badly on Jefferson. When the complete transcript of the letter was published in 2005, 
that line was included. And I was truly shocked when I read the new edition of the Jefferson Letters to find that that that, that editor had left something out. And for 60 years, uh, scholars had based their interpretation of what life was like at Monticello on this sanitized document. Um, And it, it came as a huge shock to the historians and staff at Monticello that the that small boys were ripped to get them to work. So this because this undermines you know a lot of the research that that they have been putting out, saying that Jefferson was a very benevolent slaveholder and that he didn't want people to be whipped. He was fully informed that the children were being beaten, and he did nothing to stop it. Right, right. Talk a little bit more about Jefferson as a as an innovator as, as far as slavery is concerned. Talk a little bit about his um his sort of the the calculations that he he made on return breeding um, that kind of thing. Uh, Jefferson, uh, it's, Jefferson was is really a man of his times, and we can he it really illuminates his times. And in his financial calculations about slavery, we can see the calculations that other slaveholders were beginning to make at the same time. Uh, as early as um, seven, when he was writing notes on the state of Virginia, he, he made note of the fact that every 20 years the value of land and slaves doubles in Virginia. Hmm. Um, and in 1792, he made a calculation that his slave population increased by in numbers at 4% a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I was quite startled to find that, and even... Well, I'm not some, I mean, everybody knows that slave slaveholders were, were 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 observing the increase in their property, mm-hmm. but Jefferson actually counted it out. He made a calculation, mm-hmm. and then a couple of years later, he wrote a letter to a neighbor's family urging them to invest every penny they had in slaves. He said, "Invest in land and Negroes." That they increased in value five to ten percent a year, and he referred to this as the silent profit. Um, and it's a really chilling letter. I mean, he's beginning, he's, he, he quite explicitly says that human beings are property and that they are a good investment opportunity. Right. It's, it's really quite chilling. Right, right. Now, how did, how did those views, conf- what was Jefferson's vision for America? I know I'd, I'd read a little bit about him sort of envisioning this land of small farmers, right, and, and his self-sufficiency. Yes, right. How did his views on slavery undermine that? Um, that's a very good question, um, because when he, um, when he acquired Louisiana, the Louisiana Territory, he was among, he, 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 he didn't do it all by himself, but he opened Louisiana to slavery. And, mm-hmm. and the, the people who went into, into Louisiana were, by and large, very large slaveholders. It was almost like a, cor- a corporate settlement uh, uh, or, you know, a, a, a corporate emigration. I mean, these big-time slaveholders moving hundreds of slaves and buying thousands of acres, went into Louisiana, and they muscled out the small farmers. And they muscled out anybody who didn't have any slaves. So what Jefferson did in Louisiana actually contradicted his vision of America as a land of of small farmers. And uh, in the Virginia of his time, you know, the the landscape was dominated by by big 
big planters who owned thousands of acres and held scores or hundreds of slaves. Um, but you know, Jefferson continued to talk about the the advantages of having you know some small farming uh, um, operations, but uh, you know, slavery contradicted that. Right. Right. Talk a bit about his relationship with the Hemings family. You know, you mentioned earlier that he inherited them when he married uh, Martha, and then he had a relationship with Sally Hemings. What, what, what was that relationship like and his relationship with the other family members? It's, 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 it's difficult uh, to, say, to say a lot about Jefferson's relationship with the Hemings family, um, just any, the psychology of it, because he didn't write down anything about it. Uh, I mean, we have good records about them. We have excellent records about them. Um, and actually, uh, the, they, they immediately became the most trusted house servants right, as soon as they got to Monticello when Jefferson married um, Martha Wales, and because you know, she, the, she was related to them. And um, so the, the, the siblings of Martha and their extended family came to Monticello and, as I said, became the most trusted servants on the place. And, um, but then I, but I, I have the feeling that in some ways Jefferson resented the hold that those people had over him because of their connection to his wife. Um, after his wife died and, uh, three of the slaves of the Hemingses wanted to get free of Monticello, Jefferson reacted angrily, uh, and, 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 and very harshly. I mean, one, one slave, he, he put up for sale, and two others he allowed to go free, but he did it reluctantly, and uh, the first one was James Hemings, who was trained as a cook, and he wouldn't let James go until James had trained a replacement. <clears throat> and the other one was Robert Hemings, uh, who wanted to move to Richmond because he uh, had married a, a slave woman, and the, the slave woman's master was willing to buy him and then set him free. Mm-hmm. And Jefferson was very angry about that that uh, that arrangement. But he generally, the, you know, the Hemings is held um, uh, middle ranking or high ranking posts uh, on on the plantation. Uh, the ones who lived at the top of the mountain were better fed and better clothed than most of the other slaves who worked farther down the mountain and um, uh, and worked under the overseers. But his son, Madison Hemings, the son, one of the sons that he that Jefferson had with Sally Hemings, wrote a very sort of melancholy and even bitter uh, memoir of his life at Monticello. I mean, you get the sense that he felt abandoned and denied. Um, he said his father was not in the habit of paying any attention to him and to his siblings, and Madison could see that Jefferson would have treated his white children and grandchildren very, very fondly. He was very close to them. But his black children, he ignored. Um, and so, I mean, uh, Madison grew up with this strong sense of, of alienation. So it must have been a very, very difficult and, and bitter childhood for him. Mm-hmm. And how, talk a bit about the um, sort of the... the uh, Sally Hemings was someone that people wrote about when Jefferson was alive, rumors, that kind of thing. How did that story come to light and become, you know, talk a little bit about the evolution of the story of Sally Hemings. Uh, the, the story of 
Sally Hemings was first whispered about in political circles in the late 1790s. <clears throat> uh, in, in, in the 1790s, there were there was at least one, maybe two uh, references in the uh, in in the newspapers to Mr. J, uh, who was uh, having you know the, the suggestion was that he was having relations with his with slave women, and then uh, in the early 1800s, I think it was 1802, a journalist in Richmond named James Callender, who was a political enemy of Jefferson. Published a series of articles in which he, in which Callender said that Jefferson was having an affair with a slave named Sally. Uh, Callender never mentioned her last name, and that he had five children by her. Uh, there, there are lots of things wrong with Callender's articles, but when anyway, when Callender published them, that brought the Sally story to the to the attention of the entire country because those articles were were reprinted. From Georgia to Massachusetts, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, because Jefferson was then the president, and he had a lot of political enemies, mm-hmm. so this was, uh, you know, this this was this was quite a weapon. Uh, of course, you know, Jefferson's uh, political allies and friends denied the story on his behalf. Jefferson himself never issued any denials. Mm-hmm. Um, the story never went away, even after Sally Hemings died and after Jefferson died. Um, and it, you know, it was kind of laying fallow for a while in the early 20th century, but uh, it began to come back in the in the 60s, and then in the 1970s, Fawn Brody wrote her best-selling book, uh, Thomas Jefferson: An Intimate Biography, uh, in which she gave full credence to the Sally Hemings story, and really, you know, put it put it in front of the public, and then uh, Barbara Chase Rabu wrote her novel, Sally Hemings, which was also a bestseller. Mm-hmm. And then along came the DNA tests in 1998. Right. Talk about the reaction to the DNA test. That was fascinating. Well, the people were shocked. I mean, I was shocked um, because, you know, I didn't know what to think about Jefferson's relationship with Sally Hemings. I thought that it was possible. Um, I didn't think there was really any way to prove it. And then along came Dr. Eugene Foster, who is now deceased, who had the idea of hunting down uh, or the search, you know, searching out descendants of um, Sally Hemings and descendants of Thomas Jefferson and seeing if their if their DNA matched. And lo and behold, they did. So uh, the, the the match, the, what made it um, uh, a little bit tricky was that Thomas Jefferson himself had no direct male descendants, mm-hmm. so for the purposes of the test, they had to find a descendant of his um, a descendants of his uncle, Fields Jefferson, because they would have had the same uh, DNA. Uh, so that has provided an, an opening for people who just who can't accept the DNA mm-hmm. findings to say, well, it wasn't really Je- it could have been some other Jefferson. Mm-hmm. I looked into this very carefully. Uh, you know, it's funny, the evidence for it, for the Hemings-Jefferson relationship, is, is really pretty, uh, uh, pretty thin. Um, and, but I still, I, I think it's strong enough for us to, for us to accept it. One of the, 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 the strong, one of the hardest things that I found that I had to explain to myself was, how could Jefferson carry on a relationship with this woman and have, Four living children and carry carry on the relationship for decades, supposedly, mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, and never never mention her in his records. Mm-hmm. And there's no there's no hint of any affection. There's no hint that he ever got her a gift. No hint that he gave her any really special treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's as if she didn't really exist. I mean, she was in, in his records. She's the same as all the other slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, you know, if there was any kind of an emotional bond between him and Sally Hemings, there would have to be some evidence of it, but there isn't. There's not. So um, I had a hard time getting past that. But by a process of elimination, I satisfied myself in that there was just no other member of, of Thomas Jefferson's family who was on the mountain in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. to be the father of her children. So it just had to be Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And now there's... What about the nature of their relationship? Because once it was accepted that they had a relationship, many, I guess, Jefferson scholars started to say that it was a loving sort of, you know, forbidden kind of romance, I guess. What were you, what are your views on, on that? Well, I, I follow what their son Madison said. Um, mm-hmm. He was very blunt. He, he said that his mother became Jefferson's concubine. Uh, that's a pretty ugly word, uh, but that's what he used. Um, and so that, in, to me, that says that, that that their son Madison viewed it as strictly a sexual relationship, and that his mother made a deal with Jefferson to get a decent treatment while she was a slave, mm-hmm. and to extract a promise from him that when their children grew up, that he would set them free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what he did. But he, according to Madison, he never paid attention to uh, to his children. He ignored them. Mm-hmm. Um, but but then he did he did let them go. So uh, I don't see any evidence of a warm emotional relationship. Other people say, well, they they must have had a warm relationship if if it lasted as long as it did. But you know, Madison didn't think so. At least that's not what he said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Describe Jefferson's. Um other scholars call him contradictory, enigmatic, that kind of thing is when it comes to the question of slavery. But what you, what you describe, what you outline is a clear evolution from as, as he becomes more financially interest, I guess, invested in, in slavery, he becomes more um, of an, an apologist for it. Right. Explain that process a little bit. Well, I think, uh, now, a number of scholars disagree with me on, about, on the question of whether Jefferson was anti-slavery in his young years. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people say that he was an out-and-out pro-slavery racist uh, from the time he was a very, very young man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, the, the, his writing in, in the summary view, which I talked about before, where he talks about the enfranchisement of the slaves, leads me to the, you know, the opposite idea, that I, I think that he was in favor of emancipation early on, uh, but, then, but then he changed. Uh, and, you know, partly it's because uh, he, um, he saw the, the, you know, the great profits that slavery was bringing him and was bringing the entire South. He saw that slavery, that maintaining slavery, was essential to maintaining a, a separate identity for the South. Uh, because he was already beginning to think like a sectionalist, as many people were at the time, that he saw stark differences between North and South. That's why he founded the University of Virginia, 
so that southern the southern planters' sons wouldn't have to go up north and be infected by northern ideas. So, but without without slavery, um, the South would not have the enormous wealth that it had. It would not have its enormous clout in Congress because of the three fifths clause mm-hmm. in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So uh, he saw all the political and economic advantages of slavery, uh, and he, he was also corrupted by his power. Uh, he was not only a slaveholder, but he was president, and and he he could do just about whatever he wanted in in, in, in regard to the slaves. Uh, he brushed when abolitionists came to him and asked him to do something about uh, to end slavery. He would just brush them off because he could. And the, his slaves at at Monticello had no power to push back at him. I mean, they could negotiate you know little improvements in their lives, and some of them would come and beg Jefferson. To purchase their wives or husbands, uh, they would they would ask him for permission to visit their families on different farms. Uh, and but this was not any power that they had over him. They would have to come and beg him. I mean, he he was he was the master. He had total total control. Um, so and the other thing is, I think that he really did cherish this fantasy that one day. America would be made entirely a white man's country by shipping all the black people to Africa. Uh, I mean, it was impossible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was crazy. It would never happen. But he continued to talk about it. And I think that in his mind, uh, you know, he looked forward to this day in the distant future. I mean, he said that he would never see it um, when the United States would be without blot or mixture. Um, but you see, the contradiction there is right. that he was mixing the races himself. Right, right. right. He had mixed race children. Right. So uh, I don't know what it doesn't give me any satisfaction to to hang the the label hypocrite on him. Sure. Um, that's why I think that you know he was corrupted by his power. He could he could make his own reality. I mean, he could tell people anything he wanted to tell them, and they were they couldn't contradict it. So. Right. Right. And he it seemed as just from your book that a lot of his arguments for slavery or about the nature of the slave, just like your example with his relationship with Sally Hemings, contradicts his actual experience of slavery. Right. Like, for example, he argued that slaves could not be self-sufficient if they were freed. But you wrote about a few of his slaves that went on to do pretty well once 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 he let them once he gave them their freedom, right? Exactly, yes. I mean, he, he repeatedly said that, that slaves were, you know, they were incompetent, that they could not plan for the future at all, uh, and that if if they were set free, they would become thieves and pests of society. But when he was president, he hired free blacks who were, you know, who lived in Washington. Uh, and so he could see that, first of all, when he lived in Philadelphia, as Secretary of State and as Vice President, uh, he could see that Philadelphia had a very large and thriving free black population. Washington, D.C. had the same kind of thriving free black population. Just down the road from Charlottesville, there was a small community of free blacks that later was called Free State, there was a man, a free black man, who lived in, in that community whom Jefferson hired to work in at Monticello. Mm-hmm. So he was perfectly well aware that 
African Americans could support themselves. That, and I think that's one of the reasons why he, you know, he didn't want to free them because they did plan so well. They were such good workers. Um, as I write in the book, he had a fantastic culinary operation going. He had two chefs, two female chefs, um, uh, Francis. Um, uh, Edith Hearn and Francis Fawcett, I mean, I'm sorry, Edith, Edith Fawcett and, and Fanny Hearn, who had been trained in the White House by professional French chefs. And these women were professionals in everything but name. They, it's actually astonishing that he didn't pay them even a little gratuity. Um, he took full advantage of them. Now, they worked with his head gardener, Wormley Hughes, who was a slave, and his butler, Burl Colbert, who was a slave to put together two and a half sumptuous meals a day for anywhere from 14 to 30 people. Uh, that staff and all of the people that worked below them, all of them slaves, essentially ran a mid-sized luxury hotel. Uh, and they could, have, they could have moved as a unit to Washington or Philadelphia and made a good living for themselves. Mm -hmm. And what they were doing required long-term planning, and extensive professional skills and knowledge. Uh, and they had, you know, they, uh, they, they, you couldn't, you couldn't beat them for running a food operation and a hotel operation. Mm -hmm. uh, and those were some of the most valued skills in America at that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, another argument that Jefferson made was that slavery was like having a wolf by the ears or holding a wolf by the ears. The suggestion being that if blacks were emancipated, they would be, um, they would want revenge, be violent, that kind of thing. Right. What was his experience yes. with that at Monticello? Well, he, he never experienced any, um, any violence from slaves. I mean, that there were fights. Um, one of, one of his slaves at Poplar Forest, a young man named Billy, uh, attacked and over, attacked overseers twice, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I mean, it's not. It, I mean, I'm not excusing it, but mm -hmm. that's the sort of thing that happens in any work environment. <laughs> in many work environments, <laughs> right, right. Uh, you've got a nasty boss, and you you know, you pick up a tool and you and you bash the guy. Right. Um, but Jefferson himself, I mean, in his family, uh, were never threatened by slaves. They were mm -hmm. never attacked by slaves. Mm -hmm. um, I don't recall Jefferson ever mentioning any violence against uh, planters. There was a, an, abo an aborted slave uprising in 1800, Gabriel's uh, Rebellion, mm -hmm. in, um, in, in Richmond, mm -hmm. uh, where there were some 20-something, 20, 20 or 30 slaves who planned to rise up and you know, try to get their freedom. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they planned a mass slaughter of whites. I think that their plan was to take hostages and try to bargain for their freedom. Uh, this was not a Nat Turner type um, uprising, but I think that he was really angry that so many slaves ran away from him and ran away from other planters during the revolution and went to the British because the British were promising freedom to anybody mm -hmm. who reached their lines. Mm -hmm. So he thought that that blacks were disloyal, and he completely wiped from his memory the fact that so many uh, black people fought black men fought for the revolution, for the American side. He also wiped from his memory that two of his own slaves, uh, risked, three of his own slaves, risked their lives to save his life from the British during, during the revolution, when the British were chasing him. Mm 
You know, they refused right. to, uh, to to reveal to the British where he was hiding. Right. On threat of death, right? At gunpoint. At gunpoint, yeah. Yep. What, what's, what, do you, what does he tell us about the era that, you know, up to this point? Because it seems like so many historians have been in a kind of denial, right? Like as if sort of he's this really active agent in nation building, in trade, in all these, you know, actions of a statesman. He's an architect. He does all these things. But when it comes to the question of slavery, many write about him in a very like passive way, like this, like slavery is this great burden on him. Right. What is. Yes. And that he was powerless to do anything about it. Right. Right. And why is it so important to, to correct that, that misunderstanding about Jefferson? Well, I think that it's important to correct it because, um, it shows us that even our greatest leaders can be corrupted by power and by wealth. Uh, I think it's a cautionary tale. And I, I, I really think that, it, that you know, in his early days, he was an idealist. Uh, he wanted to extend universal human rights to African Americans, and then he was corrupted by, by power and, and, and by wealth. And I think that uh, that's the kind of scary lesson that even at the at the founding of the country when our ideals were established that we were vulnerable to corruption uh, and if we were vulnerable then we were even more vulnerable now uh, and also I think that that it's it's it, it's a message to African Americans who study history you know don't take all this you know what Jefferson said literally you know, his actions and the reality on the ground are quite different from what he said. I mean, he was a master at negative propaganda about black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were inferior. They were, you know, they're dangerous and, uh, you know, they can't write poetry and all of this stuff. I don't think, I mean, I don't think he really believed all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but he's responsible for the, the structure of a lot of, racist thought that persisted that persists in this country to this day uh and if but if you look at exactly what happened at monticello you find a very intelligent competent uh enslaved population who were very uh loyal and very hard working uh and those who were able to get free uh by and large had very successful lives uh, uh afterwards no thanks to jefferson Thank you so much, Henry, for talking to us. Okay, I really, I, I love the book. I thought it was excellent. Um, well, thank you. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate your comments. Thank you. Thank you. Um, guys, you've been listening to New Books in African American Studies. This is Sean Hamilton, and your my guest has been Henry Weinsick. Uh, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. <laughs>